This is Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab, your host, Greg Gazin, speaker, blogger, author, and syndicated veteran columnist of Troy Media. Episode 149, how to host a live or virtual TEDx event, part two, with our guest, Noel Bentley. When we first talked about surprises, you talked about getting help. You also mentioned that Alan, when he went down to TED, that he had people to help them, like mentors. So out of curiosity, yourself, what kind of help did you get? And did you have a mentor through all this? Yes, I've had help. And again, as a host, it's it's not as easy as, I shouldn't say it's not as easy, but there aren't as many people that can help you as a host as you can as a speaker. True. Our speaker coach, the head of coaching for TEDx Bear Creek Park, her name is Tanya Eamon. She is fantastic. And she's a professional coach that knows how to get people on the TEDx stage. She knows what hosts need to do. And she helped me immensely from between first year and second year to really prepare myself for a huge jump. There are coaches out there that can help you that you may need to engage. I was just lucky that she was part of the, the team as we were going forward. And I think any big TEDx event will likely have a lot of professional coaches on board. There is TED itself has programs where I listen to the Portland. The Portland host apparently is, is top notch. So there was a 45 minute podcast and hearing some of the things that he went through and that echoed my experiences and the challenges he overcame, getting sick, having a child. First year, he did it with two people like I did. And he used the word, I will never do that again, I think is what he said. (laughs) As a host, you actually have to be resourceful. You have to go find help where you can find it and then be able to incorporate it into who you are and your personality. So I I was lucky to find, have one person fall into my lap, found some others, found resources and cobble them all together. And then you ultimately become the best host that you are, because you can't become a different person. Just emphasize the best parts of what you can do as a host rather than a speaker. Learn the difference of those. You have to remember that differentiation because it's so easy, I can assume, of you having a lot of experience in speaking, just one of taking on that role. But no, 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 you're the host. It's, it's almost like I've seen in panel moderation where the moderator steps in and starts to give his or her opinion ad nauseum when really you're there to just drive the traffic. (laughs) The other point that you're bringing up that's really, really important is that, is get the advice, see what other people are doing, but don't necessarily copy what they're doing. Maybe be inspired by what they're doing and make it your own so that you come across naturally. Because it's pretty evident sometimes when someone is pretty much trying to mimic or copy something that they saw from somewhere else. Right. It's true. You want to be as natural as you can as, as the host. You want to engage with the audience, be it hopefully in person, but if not through the camera lens. You're alluding to, yes, you have to find out how to bring out the best in yourself. The other part is you hopefully you're the right kind of host for that event as well. If you try and mimic or if you're actually, it's funny you talk about that because as a side note in their coaching for all the speakers as well, we don't want to give them stage directions in terms of what they do with their hands and things like that. There there might be a couple. Emphasize your own personality. And that's what you do. Take away the ticks, realize what you do that's distracting and leave the best of you there and just emphasize it a bit more because it's a bigger space. But if you try and be someone else, even if the audience doesn't consciously realize it, they'll know. And they sense it immediately. And now they're turned off. And that's not where you want to be. 
Got it. So the hands in the pocket, if it's natural for someone, you might mention that to them, but if they leave their hands in their pocket and that's the way they speak and that's the way they are, so be it. It's true. I believe one of our speakers a month ago, but the previous year, a young gentleman, I believe he was 10 years old at the time, it actually just made sense to have his hand in the pocket at times. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. You, do, you have to work it through, see who's up there and what works best for them. If someone is 10 years old up on stage doing their thing, I don't care what they do. They can stand on their heads. That's pretty impressive, actually. Yeah, we had a couple of young speakers. I believe it was 10 and 11, if I remember. I think this year you had someone who was 15, I believe. Yes, Grace is 15 at the time of doing it. Yes, we, that's the thing. You want, we want different voices. It can't always be the same type of TED Talk. And boy, did she have something to say. It was amazing to be able to work with a diverse group of people like that and on different things in terms of ages, everything. Sounds like you learned a lot from the process. You have to. It's true. Let's just talk a little bit about the environment. Last year, the event you did was live. This year, of course, it was virtual, both obviously successful events. What are some of the differences that Besides the obvious ones, that one's virtual, one's live, what are some of the things maybe that you had to do a little bit differently to adapt to that? Well, the leadership team for this coming year obviously had month by month decisions to make, knowing that at any point in time, there could be a public health order or the ability to do something or being told that we're not allowed to do something. So the planning for this one, especially for a virtual event, was was a real challenge. Though along the way, there was one guiding principle almost above others for our speakers is that we wanted to do everything for our speakers, knowing it was going to be virtual, knowing we were going, that was going to happen, that we could give them as close to a TEDx experience as possible. And we felt that that would also benefit the audience because it, the speakers would feel it and it would come through them. So we did everything in our power, following all of the rules to still record people on a set, on, a, on stage, and then play those later because you obviously can't have a group of people come and be, be sitting there. So we had to <laughs> make arrangements so that we could do this properly and safely, make it feel as live as possible, but without trying to fake it. We did not use applause. We did not incorporate that into it. We felt that that would have, wouldn't have been genuine. But the smiles on the speakers and the experience they had was genuine and they appreciated having it as close as we possibly could get to it. And then the planning came in as on on the day, you know, we had like four people there, but actually to do a quote unquote live event where I was live. So whatever went out, if if something went wrong with the host, there was no no going back. This was not recorded. (laughs) No safety net for you. Well, exactly. And I, I kind of prefer it that way because it's it does feel more genuine and little things will go wrong and that makes it more fun. That is what it's about. It's not about giving a perfect show. Perfection is for an operating room. It is not for a a stage. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel genuine and you shouldn't hold yourself to that. When those little things go awry for the production, so we allowed allowing that, we felt that that would, would also possibly engage the audience and that they would be more relaxed and it wouldn't feel canned. Completely. Nothing like watching a speaker and you know they've given that exact same talk 50 times before. They haven't, uh, as you said, got to know the audience. So we did everything we could is to try and make it as, I don't want to use the word organic, but to make it as feel as natural and and TEDx-like as possible under the restrictions that we were working on. And as a host, it meant that you had to be, be prepared, but it was also, it brought energy. 
to the event because, hey, let's go. No safety net. I feel we, we made the right decision. We even had to debate how much of the set to have because the tapings were done two weeks in advance, right? For the speakers, they, they weren't done that day, obviously. So we had, you had all those sorts of preparations to happen, but how much set do you want? Because we wanted continuity. I saw TEDx Seattle, with, they do a fantastic job down in Seattle. It's a top-notch TEDx. But I noticed when they did, did the handover from the hosts to the speakers, the set was completely different and it just threw me off a little bit. Mm-hmm. As host kind of dug my feet in a little and said, could we really have a similarity so that there's a visual continuity for the audience so that they can focus on the speaker and not have to reset something in their brain cognitively? So all of those decisions, all of that preparation went into what people experienced uh, a month ago. Well, that's interesting. So it gives you an opportunity as an MC being there from the beginning or earlier on, looking at that big picture and you notice that small thing that would actually end up making a huge difference to you. It's true. And I believe it makes a difference to the audience. And when you explain it to people and say, yes, I know this will be a little bit more trouble, but here's my thinking. What do you think? And there were moments like that all along the process where you're trying to figure out what will be best for the audience and the viewer. And so you have to go out and watch your own TEDx's as a viewer and then say, how did that work? Did that work for people? Hey, we took a couple of things from TEDx Seattle because they did an amazing job. We borrowed (laughs) a couple of concepts because they just they did a great job and it was back in November. So we had time to prepare. So we tip our hat to them, but the, and then we watched some things that that didn't work for us. We watched Toronto said that works. That doesn't. So yes, we, by waiting that long, it allowed us to incorporate a lot of things that we saw done virtually for lack of a better word. I mean, it didn't, to me, it didn't come across as being totally virtual because sometimes if you think about live events, sometimes like if you remember live aid and some of these concerts, they jump from, They jump from Los Angeles or maybe it's New York, I can't remember, to to London or even some of the awards ceremony events where they'll have multiple stages at the same location. They're not always exactly the same. So I felt actually that was uh, was quite smooth. I'm curious, the, the marching band or the band that was playing. Oh, was yeah. That li- was that live or was that pre-recorded as well? That was pre-recorded and they, however, it was shown as a recording this year. The year before, they were live on stage, the entire marching band on stage, <laughs> bumping into the props. And being the host, you got this very special look backstage. Uh, we knew they were going to play for about 30 or 45 minutes, 30 minutes beforehand, before the that one event where we were still allowed to do live before this all hit. It was literally just a month before the shutdown. So I'm watching the utter chaos of, of this high school marching band and watching them roll in glockenspiels and gloves flying and people almost <laughs> tripping and kids, but they remember they're not supposed to curse because they'll get in trouble. For, you know, and it was just, but they just, they rocked it. And as soon as those drums hit at the live event, the entire audience, all the speakers who were even bloated here and myself, it changed the mood in a moment. I have to thank Alan Warburton. He he really wanted a marching band to kick off the day. I can't imagine not having them again. So it was live uh, on stage, just barely fitting the first time. And we thought, you know what? We'd really like people to hear this band. They're great. They play at the Grey Cup parades. They're they're very well known in the lower mainland, I think, if if you know marching bands. It was really hard to tell. I just, it was, I was like, are they there? I don't think they're there, but it's like, oh, okay, maybe they are. It doesn't matter. It was actually pretty good. And of course, in the middle of all that, of course, you're streaming all of this over the internet. Plus you've also, you also incorporated a bunch of giveaways, which I thought was, was phenomenal in terms of how you handled that. 
Oh, right. Yeah. Well, the, you, you know, you talked about all the help and, you know, we have the production team that had done so much work already and there was a lot of things pre-recorded and ready and, you know, they have a moment by moment set list or for lack of a better term of everything that's happening. Plus when the giveaways will happen, but we had people monitoring uh, the live feed. We had people helping with the giveaways. I'm getting texts continuously while I'm off camera incorporating this or the TEDx ideas we want to talk about. So we had made all those decisions and got all the help. It might have only, you might have only seen two different people live that day, myself and Alan Warburton, but there was a whole 12 other people in various parts of the lower mainland helping put that on and supporting us to try and help it run as smoothly as possible. So these, again, are other things that you would not have had to do in a live environment, but with a virtual environment, which I think really added a huge amount of value. We appreciate that. And it's true. You wouldn't have to, to go to this length. You could have the giveaways out in the break area, you know, in the, in the main lobby or, or do it differently, but everything had to be altered in some way and incorporated. But we wanted to thank the audience. We wanted to be able to thank people. Probably our only regret is that we couldn't thank as many people with something else that were outside of the country because we had 30 countries represented viewing us. But, you know, you can't really send sanitized gift cards in the mail, maybe you could. Do they have a particular coffee shop out there? Maybe. <laughs> it gets a little crazy where you just have to say, thank you for being here. Come over, take a play next year, hopefully. And some of the people, of course, some of the gifts or some of the prizes you actually physically had to be or have to be in Surrey or <laughs> in the vicinity. So that would be a bit of a challenge, especially, especially right now. You've given us a lot of really sage advice. I'm just wondering if you can think, are there any other things that you can think of? Are there any best practices, things that would make for a really good MC or things that you suggest maybe you don't necessarily want to do things to avoid that you can, that you can think of? I know you covered a number of them, but are there any others that you can think of? Yeah, we, I, we talked about the preparation and practice and, and and practicing as much as you can as a hosting events. It's not easy. And the second best thing you can do for that, of course, is to make yourself nervous speaking in front of people, which can be a little bit easier to find audiences and people you haven't seen before. I did that before one of the live events. I just found Toastmaster clubs that I had never been to before, had no idea how they'd react to me, and then went and spoke in front of them because you, you just basically try it get used to calming your nerves in front of people that you've never seen before. That's important. Working on your attitude, embracing chaos, and actually kind of not daring things to go wrong, but knowing that something will. I learned this. I worked for, uh, for a large corporation. I won't name them because they no longer exist, but they chose their uh, cultural touchstones from a lot of things. They talked about wearing your hard hat. You must have your hard hat on because something is going to hit you on the head. Something is going to go wrong. And if you have the attitude that you're, that it will, and you're ready for it, and that's okay, it takes a lot of pressure off you because you've got enough to do. You've got enough to think about. And if you can take it a step further, which is also recommended by the gentleman from Portland whose name escapes me, but you know, amazing host who did it for 10 years, but also you have things ready when something goes wrong. You are prepared and people just almost may not even notice. I'll give you an example. When we were on stage, it was the last speaker when we were live. And during our dress rehearsal, he had a problem because he had a, a microphone that needed to be put on his guitar. Didn't work very well. The guy wasn't particularly helpful backstage, which can happen. At the practice, I ended up basically doing a, a stand-up routine for about seven or eight minutes just to fill the time. But it, but it was related to TED. Related to TED. It was basically how I failed at being TEDx speaker and all my terrible ideas. And this is why I, I'm the host. And then, you know, just had fun with it from there. 
And uh, lo and behold, on the day, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, you've got those big bright lights. It's very hard to see the alcove where they come out of. There's no light there, which is ridiculous. There should be a red light or something. He's dressed basically all in black. Oh dear. <laughs> and I can't see him and he wasn't there anyway. So I had to ad lib for three or four minutes. And then I, then I realized that maybe I should check for him again. I hope he's there. And I introduced him hoping he was there. I mean, and that's part of what happens. And when you ask people afterwards, they don't experience what you experience. It didn't seem anywhere near as challenging or as disjointed as you may feel in your mind because something didn't go right. Live for those moments as a host is my advice. And if you aren't comfortable with embracing those moments, being a host at a bigger event is maybe not ideal for you. Is there anything you can think of that is an absolute no-no? I'm thinking when I was looking online about good and not so good hosts for events, I remembered reading something about David Letterman, although David Letterman is a phenomenal individual in terms of what he's accomplished and what he's done. But someone had commented on an, in an article how he tried to play host at the Oscars the same way he would host his show, and that just didn't work. So is there anything that you can think of that is that sticks out like a sore thumb that just don't do this? Yeah, it's true. I mean, are you a good match for that event is a great thing. And if you're not perfect, just, you're, you know what, you, you brought it up earlier. Who's in your audience? What works best in this sort of situation? You do have to kind of divine that because, yeah, you can kind of guess who might be in the audience of a TEDx. But, you know, there's different TEDx's. If you're giving a TEDx at a high school, that's a very different audience. So you're right. As a host, you do have different tools at your disposal. And you do have to know what kind of humor you can bring out. Because if you're completely humorless, it's a little hard. But knowing what humor to use is also, I, I've, I've failed miserably at that at times. There's no doubt. <laughs> and other times it worked well. What's the worst thing to do? The trite saying of, hey, don't try and fit the square peg in the, in the round hole. As a host, you have that flexibility to fit in there, but know beforehand what you're doing so you don't try and cram something in. Because you're right, once you lose an audience, it is really hard to get them back and you've done a disservice to your speakers. That's very true. I mean, to go along with the fact that you mentioned how important it is to practice, I guess, no matter how confident you might be or how professional you might be as a speaker, obviously winging it at something like a TED or a TEDx as an MC, as a host is not necessarily a good thing. You're right. That's a terrible idea. Even though I have things memorized, every time I, I stepped onto stage, I had the next speaker's introduction in my pocket because I'd rather at least be a little embarrassed for myself than not give them their proper introduction. You're right. So it might've been there, never touched it, but it's got to be there. You got to have your backup. Having a backup, that's great. Now, we mentioned practicing and rehearsing and preparing a few times, and obviously you're someone that is very well prepared, and it sounds like you might have a fairly elaborate script initially. I know for me, I would be in a situation where I probably have way too much material. Is there a technique or a thought that you have or, a, or some guidance in terms of how you can pare down or filter out or find exactly what you want that's relevant to your audience? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I'm going to commend you for having too much material because I think you can also take away those, those words too much. I don't think you can ever have too much material. It's great to have as much as you possibly can. The preparation, the line or something you might use at, off the top of your head might come from three years before that you've written down and you just never had that moment to use it. But it comes up right then and there. 
And that comes down to practice. Yeah, you practice being ready, but you also, you've created all these things. It's like this apothecary or something. Somebody can turn to the back and look at all these bottles and just choose these one or two that are appropriate. As an event goes along, you know what's appropriate. You know what, what a speaker has just spoken about. And so you're right. If you prepared by giving yourself all of these potential lines or things to use, it comes across as completely spontaneous, but it's not, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. When someone says, oh, that was so great. I love the way you just did that. Smile and say thank you and move on. Unless they want to come to your workshop on how to do that. <laughs> but you know, they're there. So, some of the lines just are, are literally sitting there. What I used to do when I travel by planes quite often is I would go through all of these humorous lines that I've thought about my entire life and have them in one big file and just keep reading them over every time you get a chance and keep writing them. Because you never know when the right moment will appear for you to use it, that opportunity. When it feels effortless, you know it's worked out well. Uh, so now I know your secret. I always thought you were this spontaneous, off-the-cuff guy. Jeez, you were yeah. preparing all along. Ha-ha, <laughs> now I know. <laughs> it, it goes, yeah, it's true. It goes back and forth. Sometimes you say something and you write it down and then you keep it for later. It very often happens that I will chuckle to myself, maybe, you know, when we used to be able to go out for dinner and I start writing something into my phone and my wife will ask, well, what's so funny? And I've learned to say nothing. <laughs> it's not funny yet. <laughs> That's the other thing about humor is if you pare down that line and then use it on later, it's ready to go. But often raw humor in raw in the sense of just being thought of, mm, it's tough. Among friends, it often works. With an audience that's never met you before, ooh, that's a little bit different. You got to have your material ready to go. I just thought of something. If you happen to bomb on the comedy stage, you can just say, well, that joke isn't funny yet, but it will be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Noel, this has been absolutely fantastic. Now I want to see if I can find an opportunity to be a TEDx host, but I'm not sure if that's in my future for the short term. But I'm actually curious. Let's talk a little bit about you for a second. I noticed that when I introduced you, you mentioned about this thing called the power of three speaking. What, what's that all about? It's my version of keynote speaking. Really? It kind of came actually after the first TEDx is we had a group of three of speakers that we intentionally as, you know, program coordinator put together plus an energizer. And as a group, it just clicked. It just worked. The three ideas worked together. And I thought, oh, I wonder if we could do that more with speaking. What if a keynote wasn't just someone speaking for 45 minutes, a singular speaker? What if you have a topic that is important to your audience or they want to hear about it or they're interested, whatever it might be, but you can find three speakers to speak about it from a different angle, bring light to it from there. You could just choose whatever it might be. Perhaps you're at a speaking to a software engineering convention. The idea is that in three notes, sorry, my wife had the idea, call it three notes and three speakers and keynote, three note. What a great idea she had. You ask the person who's putting it all together, what are they interested in? I will now go find three speakers that match it rather than shoehorning it in. And we, they'll each speak for like 12 minutes. So it's kind of like a little set. It's like a little MIDI TED. So it could be forward-thinking software engineer, but there might be legal issues in your world. So fine, get the lawyer who can talk about it. And then maybe you're, you're venturing into something now that's important about ethics. You could get an ethicist to speak and say, remember what you're doing isn't just software engineering. You're influencing what happens in people's everyday life. So putting together a, a three note, a keynote with three different speakers, and you literally have a host that ties everything together and bridges it. And I've been test running it 
and I love it <laughs> personally. And I think the audiences get something out of it as well because it's a little bit different, but not too different. That's the idea of power of three speaking. That makes sense because often conferences may have a theme and you, you can't necessarily rely on one individual, but by packaging it all together, you've also, as opposed to just finding three independent or three individual speakers, you have a nice package together that tries to to be comprehensive so that when people leave, they've actually got something to take away with them. That's great. Yeah. And if, if you don't like one of the speakers, well now, okay, fair enough. It's only 12 minutes, but if you don't <laughs> like the keynote speaker... Oh, (laughs) (laughs) and sometimes the keynoter will come on for 45 minutes or an hour sometimes, and it'll be late at night and everyone's tired, but having 12 minute chunks at different times, I think that's great. Now, speaking of the 12 minute chunks, how can people listen to these TEDx Bear Creek Park recordings? Are they available? They are. They are searchable on, if you literally go to TED, they do have the TEDx, all TEDx's Speakers that have been vetted and approved by TED are put up and searchable on their website. You can also literally plug in TEDx Bear Creek Park and we can find the listings as well. Bear Creek Park is one word. Okay, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic. If someone wants to find out more about the power of three speaking or they want to talk to you about TEDx or perhaps they just want to find you for their next event, what's the best way for people to find you and get a hold of you? Well, powerof3speaking.com, all one word, and the three is a number. So powerof3speaking.com. I do have a website for that where I talk about that as I'm slowly putting together a noelbentley.ca website as well that should be up in about a month where we're going to incorporate the speaking, but also branch out into you know the hosting and the humor as well. So it'll be more of my personal work rather than just the power of three speaking. So powerof3speaking.com and also noelbentley.ca. I finally own it. And you're definitely on LinkedIn as well. Yes, yes. And and once I get that website up, then I'll learn how this other social media stuff works. I feel feel so antiquated. (laughs) But you're still kind of funny. (laughs) Noel Bentley, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being on the program. Great. Thank Greg. I appreciate the opportunity, and it's amazing to speak to you again. Once again, this is Greg Gazin. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, I'm not sure how you joined us, whether you joined us through directly through Toastcaster.com or iTunes, but either way, you can pick up the podcasts there. If you really enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you took a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes because it really helps with our ratings. Plus, also feel free to drop us a line. Tell us what types of things you're interested in, what your Toastmaster specialty is, or what kinds of things you like to speak about. And perhaps maybe we'll even have you on the show. This is Greg Gazin. Till the next time. This episode was sponsored by Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies. A new book by Greg Gazin, geared to ages 8 to 80. Whether you want to improve your speaking skills or build your confidence, this short read is suitable for all ages. It's available at outsmartingthebutterflies.com. <laughs>